Hello and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa, and the podcast is in partnership with PR Daily, which is the preeminent brand for public relations professionals delivering news, advice, opinions, and benchmarking via PRDaily.com. Join me there to find more episodes for the podcast. And if you like the podcast, please do leave a review and share it with your colleagues so that more folks can find it online. Thanks so much. Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's episode is with Olivia Morley, who is a senior agencies reporter for Adweek. And the reason why I had to talk to Olivia about the work that she does for Adweek is because she is crystal clear online in all the places that you can find her about how precisely to pitch her, what exactly she's covering. And if she's not the right person for the job, she'll give you the contact and information about who at Adweek it is people need to contact. So Olivia, I cannot wait to get into this conversation. Thank you for making time for the Friday Reporter podcast. Of course. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me. So I have to ask because you have a great your background is is varied and different and interesting, but you're also in a space that right now, this week, uh, is fast and furious, and it's all we're reading about because nobody, as much as you know, you might be a, a a big purport, you know, proponent of one or other of the two that are in the game. The truth is that there are plenty of us who watch the Super Bowl specifically to see the ads. So, talk to me a little bit about first and foremost, how in the world did you get started in this business? I'm happy to. I have a really untraditional background, actually, relative to a lot of my peers. So I came actually to my current beat as Adweek Senior Agency's reporter through the marketing side. So I had studied back in undergrad. I had been an English journalism major, and I had wanted to be a journalist. I had always knew that I wanted to write. But the trouble was, at the time I was going to school in Boston and it was, I graduated college in 2016 and I just didn't have the money to move to New York. And at the time, this was before the introduction of remote work. Right. It was absolutely necessary for an entry-level reporter to be in New York City or maybe in LA or Chicago. Right. And the salaries were just so low. Yeah. And so for me at the time, I thought, okay, I'm going to wait and bide my time a little bit and do something adjacent to the field. Right. And that for me was PR. Uh-huh. So I went to a PR agency for my first year. Uh, and it just so happens that all of the clients that I got were MarTech clients. And so oh. I spent every single day, you know, as sort of the lowest person on the agency totem pole, sure. <laughs> um, just reading the trades yeah. ad week being one of them. And it was 2016, you know, the presidential election and sort of this fraught cultural moment when brands were part of a different kind of conversation around politics and ad tech and, you know, funding the news ecosystem, and fake news. And so I think that for the first time in a long time, maybe ever, people were just really paying attention to advertising. And I got really wrapped up in that. I got, you know, really interested in that. And so I knew, you know, pretty much six months into my PR gig that 
I someday wanted to be a journalist covering advertising. Right. And then from there, it was just a matter of, okay, well, how do I get there? And will I ever get there? Because I, you know, I can't move. Um, and I, I didn't want to start, you know, as, as like an editorial assistant. I had a very clear picture of like exactly what I wanted to do. Right. So um, that's, that's kind of like the context for how I really started and got into advertising. And then from there, I did a few things. I was on the marketing side. I went to Forrester Research, where I worked with Jay Patazal, who is Forrester's global agency analyst. Um, there couldn't have been a better role for me to sort of get my feet wet and learn more about the agency and advertising ecosystem. Right. Um, Jay taught me pretty much everything I know about media agencies or everything I knew at the time to sort of get, you know, my feet wet and get foundation in the space. Sure. And from there, I was at Porsche for a couple of years. And then, you know, from there, I worked out an agency. I was at a small agency um, serving Samsung specifically is a B2B organization. Um, and I was, you know, essentially doing branded content, managing freelancers for its uh, Samsung Business Insights brand and doing strategy. Mm-hmm. And then um, from there, I was very briefly a product marketing manager at a software company called Cada Systems when this role opened up. And this was, you know, for me, this was like the role I had been waiting like, you know, years for. That's awesome. Um, and it just so happened that they were hired remotely. And so, you know, the stars aligned. I, I got connected through my network, through a um, professor whose class I had been auditing um, oh, awesome. for about a year, Greg David at um, CUNY's Business Journalism. He's the, the director of CUNY's Business Journalism program. And, you know, through the grapevine, got connected to my um, amazing managing editor, Jameson Fleming, who took a dance on me. And that's how I wound up here. That's so awesome. And so, that is so awesome. And that is so good because it strikes me that, well, the world really has changed, right? From the time that you got started, obviously remote was not an option. And then, you know, some of the silver linings we're finding from the pandemic and lockdown is that so much, which we already knew because we're in the comm space, so much of the work that we do is really doable remotely, right? And so much of what you've done um, in getting yourself that background, like some of the best journalists are the ones and many of the folks that I've talked to over the course of the last two years since I started the podcast, the ones that I think enjoy their work the most are the ones who really are steeped in the industry that they're covering, whether it's ad agencies like you are, or folks that are in a specific policy area, many of which a lot of like, there are plenty of journalists that have come from Wall Street that are now covering Wall Street. It's really, it's cool, because you understand the contours and the um, the different levels and the different sort of complexities of the industry in a way that shines through in the coverage that you're offering for Ad Week now. So I'm obsessed with that. And I think it's super cool the way you've actually been crystal clear with folks as they're coming through to you, like what it is you care about, what it is you're going to cover. Don't expect to get a call. I mean, it's, it's, it's not nearly as blunt. Forgive me. I'm from New Jersey. So everything sounds blunt to me, but um, it, it's great. And it's the kind of thing that, that part of the reason why I started the podcast in the first place was because I felt like the industry was changing, but also it was not being well served by public affairs people because we rely so heavily, we being the royal we, everybody, um, rely heavily on lists and not necessarily on making connections. And so much of what it looks like you have laid out in even the, the pitch guide that you've shared with folks 
is you want to be crystal clear, not only so that your time is not um, pulled in a different direction than the work that you cover, but also so that PR people have a crystal clear understanding of whether or not they're going to be hearing back from you. Yeah, I mean, that's 100% true. And I think very much informed by the year that I spent working in PR, as I said, sort of at the bottom of the totem pole, because I think what not a lot of journalists realize is that the PR agency system is is very much a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of folks who, you know, they're working so hard and they're pitching journalists, they're managing lists, awards, as you say. And sometimes it can just be, you know, there's a lot of pressure inside an agency to deliver for your clients and to learn quickly. And in my experience, you know, I've really struggled in that job. It was really hard. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of empathy for people who are going through the process. And I think, you know, sometimes it's no wonder that we journalists are sometimes pitched things that don't resonate with us or that don't make sense. Because what a lot of these folks are being asked to do is like, you know, insurmountable. Like, you you know, you have to pitch so many people, you have to understand so many different journalists sort of like works the way they like to be spoken to pitched. Um, everyone's different. And so I just thought, okay, well, I want to make this I want to give the industry something that I would have enjoyed having myself. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, sort of the impetus for doing that. In addition to the fact that like it benefits me to have, you know, more streamlined communication um, coverage that's built around exactly what I want to cover. Like why not help each other? I mean, without question. And I think you're right. You hit hit on something that's really sort of personal to me in that there is a a high level of expectation on low-level public affairs people to land a pitch and to secure a pitch. And so a lot of times they rely on a list and send out mass pitches that really land with a thud. I mean, they don't really make the mark. And so you've actually made it very crystal clear um, for folks to understand like this is what Olivia is covering. So let's get into a little bit because I'm curious. I want you to tell me a little bit about this is especially busy time for you because I know you don't typically cover campaigns except when you are in Super Bowl season, which we are absolutely in Super Bowl season. Talk to me a little bit about how you've laid that out in terms of the things that you are covering. I've got kind of a list here, but I'm curious, will you share with me what are you looking for on a day-to-day basis as it comes to, to pitches that are coming through? I'm happy to. So when I took this job um, now about a year and some months ago, back, you know, October in 2021, I told Jameson, when I come in, I want to be a feature writer. Mm-hmm. I want to cover, you know, if I could could think of a breakdown, that's like 20% breaking news, 80% features. And that is exactly what it's been for me. Um, and that's what I, you know, plan for it to continue to be. And so for me, I really, really hone in on feature stories. Um, you know, these are, as you know, as I say in the document, usually between 600 and 1200 words. Mm-hmm. And there are stories that focus on multiple characters. It's, it's very rarely like I can take a, a single sort of like profile story and use that. And, and I really prefer to interview multiple sources that highlight a high level industry trend. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always what I'm looking for. So for example, um, you know, I wrote a story about ta- how talent issues are 
forcing agencies to be more selective about the brands that they sign on with. And I talked to a number of people, both on the brand side and the agency side who laid that out for me. And it's, it's kind of, you know, almost like scientific in a way where you kind of have a hypothesis based on some data that you get. And then it's like, okay, well, let's talk to people and let's see how this trend is actually developing and if it's developing. And so, you know, that's, one thing I do, I think, um, you know, DE&I coverage, how, how agency employees are actually feeling in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, toxicity, as I mentioned, you know, agency environments can be rough places. So what's actually going on, you know, on the ground level? That's a big thing that I'm focused on. Right. Um, you know, people's um, sort of relationships with their clients, which can sometimes be very healthy and sometimes be very fraught. And what are the elements of a healthy client relationship? Where do you draw the line? Um, So, you know, an ideal situation for me is having conversations with like all of the holding companies, some big endies, you know, anybody in the industry who has an interesting story to tell that, you know, maybe is reflective of of a larger industry trend or problem. those are the things I focus on. And then in addition to that, you know, the 20% that is breaking news, like account moves. And I always like to talk about account moves from the perspective of both brand and agency. So having a conversation with the CMO and saying, okay, what were you looking for when you put out an RFP? Why did you do it? What is your marketing strategy? And how is that reflective of how marketers are, you know, changing their strategies to connect with today's consumer and then talk to agency and, you know, ideally some of the agencies that participated in the pitch to say, okay, well, how did you do, how did you think about, you know, answering their problem or answering their question? Um, So that's pretty much the high level. Um, And of course, you know, anything that my coverage area is very flexible in the sense that if there's something that stands out to me as unique, um, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to necessarily say no, but I would say that, um, I tried to steer away from writing up, uh, stories based on press releases. There always has to be kind of like a, so what to it. Right. That makes sense. That makes a ton of sense. And I think that that's, well, especially because you only have so much time in the day too, you probably have to look for those nuggets and those morsels that are really relevant and different and new. Um, obviously, the root of the word news is just that. Um, I'm curious, though, I in some of the coverage that I looked at from you, it looks like um, the one thing that's kind of interesting to me, and I suspect that this is true of business and everywhere else, is this new trend, or at least a trend that seems to be happening right now about in-housing and how people are bringing folks from outside into um, either their business or otherwise. Will you explain a little bit more about what that is to me? I'm happy to. So, you know, it's a trend that's been unfolding now for a while. I um, follow the in-house agency forum, which is a trade organization based out of Boston. Mm-hmm. and have been following them since my time at Forrester. And they put out a study every year that sort of measures where the industry is. Like how many, how many brands are actually building out their own agencies within their own organizations instead mm-hmm. of working with external vendors. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, um, you know, don't quote me on this, but it's, it's somewhere in like the, the 70% area of those that were surveyed by um, the in-house agency forum. So it's quite a lot. And yeah. really what this trend sort of describes is like, you know, uh, a cost, sometimes a cost saving mechanism where the CMO or the marketing leaders will begin to 
effectively build their own agency organization. And this is always separate from the marketing team. So for example, you know, you have your, your corporate comms, your product marketers, your, um, you know, social media folks that maybe make up the, the brand marketing team. And then there will be a totally separate organization, like very siloed sometimes from the core marketing team. And they act like an agency, you know, they, they, are part of the brand. They all work with, you know, in the same building, have the mm-hmm. same email <laughs> address, domain, things like that. Sure. But they communicate with the marketing team as though the marketing team is their client. Interesting. And so, yeah, so it creates a really um, interesting dynamic that sometimes is more efficient in the sense that like this agency team, like all they work on is their brand. Whereas an external agency team might have, you know, 10 clients that they're juggling and right. it's very hard to get, you know, a high um, caliber or like, or, you know, quality work from an agency that is overworked or busy. And sometimes, you know, doesn't have access to like the branding materials and all of those like little quirks, you know, the, right. the protected, you know, secure online environments and just all of those hassles. And so sometimes it's more efficient. Sometimes it's, you know, saves money for brands. I mean, every, every circumstance is different, sure. um, but it can be cost saving avenue. Um, it also and strikes it's growing. me. Yeah. It strikes me too um, with the way brands are more so than ever before, really have to be very, very protective of their reputation, right? In a way that it maybe is even more, because we're in this, we're in this trap laden situation right now where regardless of what is being communicated, it could be misinterpreted for a variety of different means and a variety of different ways. And perhaps if having their own separate from marketing agency within the building. Um, that's another way to sort of maintain that continuity and that message discipline that perhaps maybe wouldn't be as easily maintained outside of the agency. But I feel like too, you know, we've seen this before where folks want to hire, especially in here in Washington, DC, we see it all the time. Some folks will say, well, we want to own digital now. So digital be in house for a little while. And then they'll decide that digital is not nearly as interesting if it's in-house. So maybe we need to find something that's external, right? So this is kind of the, if there were a merger and acquisition situation in the world of communication and the space that we're in, I suppose this would be a pretty good example of that. Um, I think that that's very true. And you often see situations where there is sort of that push and pull, you know, there will be an in-house agency for a time and then it will, you know, be dissolved or it will work closely with an agency partner. There's even a trend right now where agency partners during the RFP process are being judged by the brand on their willingness to work with in-house agency partners and grow those agency teams, those in-house agency teams. They're almost being brought on as consultants and so yeah it's really fascinating to watch and just as you said you know it's it's not all or nothing there are absolutely instances where there will be a in-house creative agency whereas media and you know other um, parts of the media mix are outsourced or vice versa Um, it just kind of depends on the brand and their needs right and so much too, you mentioned before, but it's interesting that the trend um, and the, the way that these brands identify with uh, additional marketers or influencers for that matter, there's a lot of that. There's even, a, there's a new agency here in town in DC that I work with that is absolutely 100% focused in on helping brands and political campaign, not political campaigns in, in terms of um, candidates, but in terms of issue campaigns where they'll be identifying influencers that can be useful 
in that space. That's like a whole new ball of wax and a trend that's really sort of, it's risky to me, it seems like for for uh, brands to use them, but it does seem like something that more and more we're seeing and we're digesting in our own social media profiles and everywhere else. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that there is an agency for almost any challenge right now. Yeah. And what is really fascinating about that is that the ecosystem is so almost inundated with options. And that can be a good thing in the sense that, you know, a marketer can find help when they need it for whatever, you know, they need it for. Mm -hmm. And also a bad thing in the sense that, it creates a, a lot of options and very few opportunities to sort of differentiate. And so, um, and, you know, as you said, evaluate risk, you know, you, when you're faced with, um, you know, choosing a, a whole bunch of partners to add to an agency roster, you might be working if you're a large brand with hundreds of them, mm-hmm. then there's certainly, you know, the brand safety component you have to consider, okay, like, you know, who is this agency partner? What work have they done for others in the past? You have, maybe you interview some of their previous clients. Um, I think that that's why, you know, we still have pitch consultants in the space, which are essentially third parties that come in and match make between agencies and brands because they can sort of, you know, put the marketer at ease when they're navigating these kinds of relationships. Oh, that's interesting too. So as we we talked before we um, got to recording and we talked about the possibility of maybe airing this episode uh, right after the Super Bowl, because it seems like even though you don't typically cover campaigns, the Super Bowl is definitely one that you will take a close eye at. So tell me a little bit uh, what what you can. What should we be looking for? What kinds of trends? What kinds of uh, things are you anticipating? Now, we'll air this after the Super Bowl, but tell me a little bit about what you're seeing um, coming up here uh, for the for the game itself. Happy to. So I'm focused on the auto industry. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's been beneficial for me from a workflow perspective. One of the things that everyone should ask themselves after the game is where were all the auto brands? Um, usually you see the auto brands front and center in the Super Bowl. You know, Toyota had a great commercial last year that I was, um, it was a pleasure to cover and they opted not to participate this year. And so I think that, you know, and and Kia is, I I believe the sole or if not one of the sole auto makers that you will see in the Super Bowl. Um, But I think that one thing to, that audiences should really think about when they watch these ads is like, what do the folks who participate, what, what is the, you know, the breakdown of the brands that you see say about larger ecosystem? And with the auto brands, I mean, you're based, you're looking at a macro situation where supply and demand is still, you know, really tough for them. They're still trying to make enough cars, things like that. Right. So it's sort of telling in a way like, okay, you know, maybe we don't want to invest what can be it's like, you know, USA Today said like an average of $8 million um, for a single, you know, Super Bowl spot just to secure a place to advertise a product that might not be there. So I think that that's something to watch. I think you've given everything that's going on with crypto right now. And last year, the Coinbase ad, I mean, everyone remembers that. Yeah. Um, pay attention to, you know, if crypto's there or not, because that's also very telling about what's going on with the financial ecosystem that's right so now interesting. Um, and with cryptocurrencies in general. So, and, and I think those are probably the two elements that for me are standing out as most interesting um, the last thing I'll say is that it's always 
interesting to pay attention to which brands are working with celebrities versus ones that opt not to. Um, and consider if the celebrity-backed ads are, are really even more engaging at the end of the day than those that don't have them. Because over you know the course of the last, really since 2020, many brands have been dropping their celebrity endorsements. So now that you know, the height of the pandemic is sort of past, like, are we going to see more brands picking back up that work with celebrities or not? Right. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, as a footnote, I have to tell you, I come from the same hometown as Danny DeVito, and I am obsessed with him as the guy for Jersey Mike's because I know that you covered a little bit about that. So I did, uh, yeah. <laughs> so you'll forgive my my Jersey nerdiness, but I dig, I, I really do dig Danny DeVito as the uh, the Jersey Mike's guy. But I know that there won't be an ad for that, so that's not what I'm even trying to preview. Just letting you know that of all the celebrities, that's the one I'm rooting for the most. <laughs> not yet, but that ad is phenomenal, and it's a really smart idea. There are a number of brands that are making sort of these teasers that are about the Super Bowl, but they're not actually going in the Super Bowl. And I'll say as a reporter that I think it's a really brilliant idea um, because you're able to be part of the Super Bowl conversation. Like, you know, in this podcast right now, we're talking about the Danny DeVito ad in the context of Super Bowl, and they didn't have to spend the $8 million. Right. So that's pretty incredible. (laughs) Good for them. Good for them. So Olivia, as we get to the end of our conversation, I always ask for a recommendation for a future guest for the podcast. Is there someone uh, that you think would be a good future guest for me to to reach out to? Yeah, I would reach out to Emmy Lederman. She is um, a phenomenal reporter within my newsroom. Um, Adweek was actually her first post-college job, and um, she might hate me for saying this, but she is one of our most successful reporters in the newsroom. She drives an incredible number of views, an incredible number of subscriptions. She is, I don't know if you're familiar with the reporter Taylor Lorenz, um, who does phenomenal coverage of the influencer marketing space. Emmy is following uh, very much in Taylor's footsteps and is someone to watch and uh, has a great perspective on influencer marketing and how it's evolving right now. I love it. Okay, cool. Well, I'll reach out and I'm going to tell her that you nominated her. And I'm going to let you get back to your busy day reporting on all the things. Uh, Thank you so much for making time for me the Friday before the game. And let's continue to stay in touch. I absolutely love the work you're doing. And I'm so grateful for your time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on, Lisa. It's been great. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast, a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.